Morning, friends. I am Perry, and one of the pastors here on staff. It's great to be together this morning to worship the Lord and to continue to do that through his word. And I'd like to begin our time together this morning by embarrassing myself just a little bit. What else should you do at the start of a sermon? So whenever I'm in the middle of a humiliating situation, I have this nagging sense that just maybe I'm in a future sermon illustration. So here we go. Some of you know about me that I used to live in Colorado Springs for about 13 years and went to college there for four years as well. So I know the city pretty well. Last February, Katie and I were back in Colorado Springs for a weekend marriage conference. Some of you might have been there with us as well. And the situation that we were in was that the, ho the hotel that we stayed at was town and the conference was down in the Broadmoor area, which is the southern part of the Springs. So here's where the embarrassing part comes into play. On our way back from the Broadmoor to the hotel that first night, I have to admit, I got a little turned around. I actually got lost. And just for context, so you know, I used to work downtown. I would spend five days a week for about a year's worth of time downtown. We used to go to church downtown for a period of time. We know the area pretty well, but yet I got completely disoriented on our way back to the downtown. Here's my reason why. Maybe I'm not that bright. That could be one possibility. The second possibility, though, is that we approach the downtown area from a different direction. Normally, when I lived there in the past, we would approach from the north or from the east. But the way things were situated, I had to come in from the southwest, a direction that I wasn't used to. And that new approach to a familiar area cause that familiar area to not be so new, or to not be so familiar rather, but to be new. We hope that something like that happens during this series for all of us in a good way, that we would be a little bit disoriented as we approach very familiar territory, the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ, but maybe from an angle that you're not normally approaching it from, which is the book of Isaiah, 700 years before these events took place. So this morning, we're going to be in chapter 11, start off in verse 1 there of Isaiah. But before we get there, I need to give you a little bit of backstory on what's going on in Isaiah. Right at the start, after Isaiah introduces himself, in verses 2 and 3, he says this, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's feeding trough or crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. That's the key phrase. Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Even a domesticated animal knows who it belongs to, knows where the food, the provision comes from, but Israel they don't know. The number one issue that God's people are facing from Isaiah's perspective is the issue of pride. And he uses some very figurative and imaginative language to be able to convey what pride is like. So he brings up the images of a tall hill or mountain, a tall wall, a tall tower. And the taller those structures, the more prideful the person or the nation that they represent. 
We see that in chapter two, where he says this, says, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. He's going to level the hills. He's going to topple down the walls and the towers. But the number one illustration that he uses to express this human pride is that of a tree. It's that of a tree. So as we enter Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 this morning, what we should have in our minds, this idea of standing in front of a dense forest, only with an unobstructed view, because the divine lumberjack has brought judgment on all of the trees. It's a bleak picture. Merry Christmas. Let's get into it now. In verse 1, here's what Isaiah says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So out of this dry, dead stump, Isaiah sees hope springing up out of it, new life. This isn't just some abstraction. If you look at the events that actually happened in history, you can see that in 722, 721 BC, the Assyrian Empire would come in and carry off part of God's people into exile. And then later in about 605 BC and on a couple of subsequent occasions, the Babylonians would come in, they'd enter Jerusalem, they'd tear it down, they'd topple the temple, throw down the walls, and carry off the people into exile. This isn't just hypothetical. This actually happened. But Isaiah is careful to locate what's going on here in a very precise place. It's the stump of Jesse. It's the roots of Jesse. This goes back to the father of King David. If you were to turn back in your Bibles, you would get to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and find that there's a promise that the Lord had given to King David centuries before Isaiah wrote these words. And in that occasion, David had expressed a desire to build a house for the Lord, to build a temple. And the Lord said, no, 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 I will make you a house When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you who shall come from your body and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So the question that might come into our minds as we read this in Isaiah is why is Isaiah referring to the house or to the roots, the stump of Jesse and not of David? We don't know for sure, but it's possible that what Isaiah is trying to do is to show that what Israel does not need is just another ancestor of David. All of those kings have led them into the predicament that they're in right now, the one of pride that turns its back on the Lord. What they need is someone who's attached to that prior promise that God had made, but yet someone entirely different. It's the root of Jesse, and it's coming up out of the ground. And what we see in that that dusty, dry stump is this idea that God's promises grow out of the most unlikely places. If we were to go back and trace a line from 2 Samuel 7 to that time when 
King David received the promise to these words of Isaiah, and then on into the New Testament, we would get into Luke chapter 1, where we see another situation that's very similar to this. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and he says this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary, recognizing how unlikely this is, she asks the obvious question, how will this be since I am a virgin? God's promises grow out of the most unlikely places, whether it's a dry, dead stump, or whether it's a womb that in the language of Scripture has not yet been opened. God's promises continue to grow up in spite of those unlikely circumstances. That's the kind of God that we have. It's the kind of God that we worship this morning. A God who makes things grow out of unlikely places. What is the nature of this branch, though? What is the nature of this one that's being promised? Isaiah continues to explain. In verse 2, he says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So right as we try to observe this, one of the things that we can't miss is just this fact that the connection to the stump of Jesse and the description in these verses points to a kingly figure. Somebody who's going to rule, somebody who's going to decide disputes, somebody who's going to overcome enemies. This is a kingly figure, this branch that Isaiah is writing about. And as we look at this branch, what we see is somebody who first and foremost is marked by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord. Throughout Scripture, we see the Spirit of the Lord resting on different people. And as the Spirit comes upon people, those people are given certain abilities, certain capabilities they they would not normally have. Here are some examples. Take the discernment and wisdom of Joseph, not Mary and Joseph, but the Old Testament Joseph, interpreting Pharaoh's dreams in Genesis 41. Take the skill, the craftsmanship, the knowledge and ability of the men, Bezalel and Aholiab, to make the ornate articles for worship in the tabernacle. We read about that in Exodus 31. Look at the leadership and wisdom that God gave other people, like Moses, and shared with the 70 elders of Israel in Numbers 11. And then later, that same spirit of leadership being passed on to Joshua as they entered the promised land. Look at the courage and abilities of the judges like Gideon, Jephthah, think of Samson, the leadership ability and wisdom given to the king, Saul and David. And then think of prophets like Elijah and Elisha. In each of these cases, 
incredible supernatural abilities were given as the Spirit of the Lord rested upon these people. But yet it was a limited experience. The Spirit of the Lord came upon them in a temporary sense, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon them only in a partial sense in terms of the abilities they were given. Joseph had the ability to interpret dreams, but he did not have the strength of Samson. But here we see a figure that if we follow this branch and the story throughout the rest of Scripture, we see that when the Spirit of the Lord rests upon this one, it's different. It's permanent. And it's in the fullness of all that the Spirit gives. Again, Mary's question is something that we should come back to. How shall this be? Well, Mary is told, is answered by the angel, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. No one else gets this description in Scripture. The Spirit comes on these other people, but no one is called holy in this same way, the Son of God. This righteous branch, he's the one who the Spirit even conceives inside of Mary. It's like the Apostles' Creed and the ancient creeds of the church that identify Jesus as the one who is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Later on in Jesus' baptism, the, the launch of his ministry, his public ministry, we see it again when Jesus was baptized immediately. He went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. Again, the relationship of Jesus to the Spirit is unlike anyone else's experience of the Spirit. The Spirit and the Son of God are one. And this spirit, when it comes upon, when it rests upon the branch in Isaiah 11, we see these different abilities that are given to this person. It's the spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and fear of the Lord. As we think about each one of these pairs, we see that in contrast to the Israelites' The children of God who, in, back in chapter 1, it said they did not know. They did not understand. Even the domesticated animals have a deeper understanding than they do. In contrast, this branch will have wisdom and understanding. But he doesn't just have that understanding, but he also has the courage to act on it. We know people probably who know the right thing to do, but fail to do it simply because they don't have the courage to carry it out. Or they have all kinds of courage, but they lack the sense to go with it. This person, though, has the knowledge and fear of the Lord guiding them as they live. This is a stark contrast to the kings of Israel. The kings of Israel claim to have these attributes. They claim to have these qualities. But in each and every case, they failed. Even some of the better kings, like King Hezekiah and King Josiah later on lacked understanding in their lives. This figure, though, has no flaw like they did. This is someone who has the kind of understanding, the kind of skill, the kind of courage to make a great king. And it says here that this person has the fear of the Lord. 
If we keep reading in verse 3 then, we see his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. John Oswald is an Old Testament scholar and a commentator on Isaiah. And I think he has some helpful words for us on what this means for this branch to be somebody who fears the Lord. Here's what Oswald says. He says, the problem with all of the other kings is that they did not rule out of a pleasing and glorifying God. That's what it means to fear the Lord, that we would have as our primary concern this obedience to God, the desire to please him, the desire to glorify God, that that above everything else is what motivates us. But when you have that fear of the Lord, it's a beautiful thing. He continues on and says this, the person who knows God in a full-orbed way and is supremely concerned to please him because he fears him can be depended upon not to allow self-serving to cloud the issue, to cause him to trample other people. Just think of the contrast in leaders that we know or people we know. Maybe they're not even leaders in our own lives, but people whose primary motivation is pride. You can't even get in a conversation with some people without the conversation inevitably landing back on them. The focus comes full circle back around to who they are. They are self-seeking people. In contrast, somebody who fears the Lord in this way that's somebody who doesn't want to talk about themselves. One person has said it this way. It's not that they think less about themselves, but they think about themselves less. They're not self-absorbed in the way the person who is prideful is. The person here wants to advance their own cause, to go after their own initiative. But the person over here who has the fear of the Lord is somebody who's mindful of the one they are pleasing, and it is not themselves. That is a leader who is dependable. That is a leader who is trustworthy, and that is a leader we long to follow. This is the one an anguish that Israel's found itself in. This is the one to go after, this one who fears the Lord. As we keep reading on now, we see that this desire to fear the Lord is what motivates and drives the person. And as that happens, it says, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. It's so critical because anybody who's in a position of authority, in a position of judging another person, can't help but be limited by a lack of information that we have imperfect insight to the situations that we face. But this person here doesn't judge by just the evidence that's presented because this person knows the fullness of what's going on. Not only that, but we're so often influenced by what our eyes see, the appearance of others. Somebody shows up who appears to be wealthy, maybe with a big, impressive title. Maybe somebody who has a lot of clout. And we can't help but want them to like us. And maybe we'll compromise a little bit in the decision we might make or the way we treat them. Give them a little advantage, not this person. This person doesn't judge that way on appearances or decide by what is told to him because he already knows everything that's going on. It's righteousness that helps this person stay on track. It's righteousness that comes from that fear of the Lord. And it's righteousness towards the poor, 
It's righteousness towards the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If we think about Jesus's ministry, his harshest words were reserved for those who had those impressive titles, those fancy resumes, the ones who had a big, loud platform to stand on. And he identified himself instead with the people who had no voice, with the people who were on the margins, the vulnerable, the ones who needed justice because they were being oppressed by others who had power. These are the ones who Jesus ministered to, identified with, and judged in favor of. This is a God who we can trust. This is a God who's dependable. And this is the leader we long to follow. God's promises grow out of some of the most unlikely places. And through Jesus, they bear fruit in some of the most unbelievable ways. Imagine being under this kind of authority. Imagine that having this as your king, as your leader, the one who's guiding you, the one who is directing you. What says that not only will he lead of this righteousness for the poor and the meek of the earth, but he shall strike the earth with the rod. There we go. With the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This is harsh language. But judgment and justice go hand in hand. We cannot have a just world without the judgment of God. And that's what we see depicted here, that the ones who are oppressing the poor, the ones who are subjecting the meek, are the ones who are to be judged by this righteous branch, that he is the one who will set all things right. In Revelation 19, there's similar language to what's going on here in Isaiah chapter 11. And in that passage, it talks about one who's sitting on a white horse. He's called faithful and true, and in righteousness, he judges and makes war. It says he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the one who is faithful and true. There's the image there of his robe dipped in blood, and people debate whether this is the blood of his enemies or his own blood. But throughout the book of Revelation, what you see is that Jesus is presented as the lamb who was slaughtered. And it's his own blood that brings victory over evil and sin. This is God's judgment that brings the justice that Isaiah speaks about in chapter 11. And not only is it something that he does, but it's something that he is. If we go back to chapter 11, we see that, sorry, go back up, Heidi, two slides. There we go, okay. 
So it, what we see here is that righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. This just points to the reality that not only does he do things that are righteous and do things that are faithful, but this is who he actually is, that this branch is righteousness. This branch is faithfulness. This is the one who, if you took away all of the other parts of life that might distract him. He would be the same person in any other situation, in every situation. He is the same. This is the ultimate picture of integrity, that this righteous branch is defined by these qualities because he is the very embodiment of them. It's the very source. So we might wonder then, what would it be like to live in a world where this branch is bearing fruit. First of all, here's what it does not look like. Tyler Rogaway is a columnist who wrote recently about a spectacle we've all seen either in real life or maybe pictures of or in the movies. It says, when the president of the United States travels by car, the presidential motorcade is both the safest and the riskiest convoy on the planet. The globe-trotting fleet of vehicles is basically a rolling armored White House. It's complete with its own response force, communications office, press corps, and medical facilities. Generally, the presidential motorcade is made up of the following components. There's a route car, a pilot car, which travels ahead of the motorcade, checking the route and providing guidance. There are sweepers consisting of motorcycles and patrol cars that clear the way. There's the presidential limousine, affectionately known as the Beast, it's a very heavy Cadillac, but it's really an extremely survivable armored car. It's outfitted with top-level ballistic armoring, night vision, infrared driving systems, a sealed cabin with an independent air supply capable of enduring a nuclear, biological, chemical attack, and even a supply of the president's own blood type. All this is in addition to a state-of-the-art communication system. As if one of those isn't enough, they have multiple limousines in the whole motorcade as a backup or as decoys. Then there are the additional vehicles. Following the motorcade is the security detail, the SUV filled with heavily armed agents. There's an electronic countermeasures vehicle so that if the threat is detected, smoke, chaff, and targeted jamming could disrupt an attack. Then there's the press van and ambulance in case there's an attack. And of course, helicopters overhead that provide an overwatch. All of this comes at the very expensive cost of an estimated $350 million a year. Just one trip costs $2,614 each and every minute to transport the leader of the free world. There's a certain kind of sad irony that the most powerful people in our day need such extravagant protection from the hazards and the dangers of this world. In contrast, here's what the fruitful branch brings us. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf, they'll be together. A little child shall lead them. Keep going. The cow and the bear shall graze.
their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child, <laughs> the nursing child will play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will pl- put his hand on the adder's den. You're like, no, don't do that. Don't do not do that. That's a terrible idea in our life. Okay. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Remember, the ox knows its master. The donkey knows its crib. But my people do not know. They do not the change to a day where all of the earth will know the Lord as the waters cover the seas. In that day, the root of Jesse, he shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Hallelujah, bring it. It's incredible. There will be no more car accidents. No more need for open heart surgery. No more cancer. No more danger and hostility. You might think, oh, but maybe a political leader could come in and could just bring about this this day where all of the nations will be able to get together. First of all, yeah, right. But second of all, That would not change the fact that the wolf would still love to bite the head off of the lamb. This is a fundamental change that no human being can bring about. God's fruit produces this kind of bountiful harvest. God's promises grow out of the most unlikely places and yield this fruit in Jesus that produces the most unbelievable fruit. That is the message we see here. Remember when the nations inquired on a small scale, when the wise men from the east came and say, where is this child has been born king of the Jews? One day, all of the nations will do that same thing on a scale that is of no comparison to just a few people from the east coming. One day, all of the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. What a beautiful picture. And of course, this is all paid for by the blood of the one who is faithful and true. Of taking communion. And as we do that, we are celebrating the one who is bringing this rule and this reign, the one who is the promise the one who is this branch growing out of the most unlikely spot. And the fact that we can worship him is made possible because of the price that he paid on our behalf. Let's take a minute. Let's just take a minute and reflect on all that he has done for us as we prepare our hearts to enter into this time of sharing in the bread and sharing in the cup. If you have not been with us before for this, uh, we will hand out the elements. So when the bread comes by, for example, just take it and hold on to it, and then we will take it together. This is for all who have put their hope, put their trust, 
in following this faithful and true God of ours. If you're helping to serve, would you come forward now?